Praise God. All right, you guys, the check's in the mail. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, appreciate that support. So I, uh, I too, who, echoing a little. I uh, want to echo what a blessing it was that we were able to meet in the parking lot during difficult times. A lot of churches weren't able to meet. But I am going to say, like the psalmist, that I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. <laughs> and uh, it's good to be indoors and to be back um, as a body here. So praise God. We're going to be continuing in the book of Mark, looking at chapter 12. Um, and chapter 12 begins with one of those wonderfully important words uh, that preachers love, and, uh, because it's a conjunction, and that tells us that it's a continuation of all that we've been studying, that this and is connecting what we've been looking at in chapter 11, um, and Jesus is going to be pulling this into this parable that he's going to tell to the crowd, and says he began to speak to them in parables. You know, Jesus is a storyteller, and he tells these wonderful stories. And a parable is a story that's intended to teach a lesson. Specifically in the mouth of Jesus, parables were stories that had earthly subjects or plots or analogies. Um, but they're intended to convey a spiritual or a heavenly uh, message. And we still have parables today. But the difference for Jesus was Jesus had come from heaven. <laughs> and so when Jesus tells a heavenly parable, he knows what he's talking about. And so he just had this amazing way to convey such incredible truths in very compact formats, in these very powerful parables. And the real power of parables, especially Jesus's parables, is their ability to reveal the heart of the listener by our reaction to the parables. And we're going to see that this morning, um, and then we're going to have to evaluate and look at our reaction to this parable. What do we think it's telling us? You know, Jesus has just been asked a question, basically, by these religious leaders. Basically, they said, who do you think you are? Right? He's in there. He's cleansing the temple. And they want to know, like, what in the world are you doing? And he doesn't answer them. Or so he says he wasn't going to answer them. It seems like he doesn't. But in this parable, he's going to provide them an answer. But only for those who have ears to hear. And then more importantly, as Jesus tells this parable... He's going to be asking us a question. And that question is simply this. Whose garden are you? Or whose garden are you in? Depending on how you look at the analogy of this parable. So let's look at the parable and we'll talk a little bit more through that. Let's look at um, Mark 12, 1 through 12. It says, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it. And he dug a pit for the wine press, and he built a tower, and he leased it to the tenants, and he went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other a beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and drew him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. 
and it is marvelous in his eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word, Father. Thank you for the truths that are uh, in this wonderful parable that Jesus has given to us. Father, may we have open hearts to receive your truth and to see ourselves as you intended in this parable uh, for the lessons that you seek to teach us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, the first question you have to ask is, who's they? Who is Jesus talking to? We're told he began to speak to them, and it's really tempting to conclude that who he's talking to are the Pharisees and the religious leaders who have just asked Jesus in chapter 11, by what authority are you doing this, right? It's very easy to say, well, when he says to them that he's clearly talking about us, I'm talking about them. But I strongly believe that if you look at the entire context of chapter 11 and 12, you have to come to the conclusion that Jesus is not just talking to the religious leaders. He's talking to his entire audience, which includes those who are at the temple, who have just been walking through. It includes his disciples who have come with him. And of course, it includes the religious leaders. But more importantly, and the reason this is so important is, it includes us. It's tempting to read the statement there at the end that they perceive that he was talking about them and to shake our heads and kind of walk away and say to ourselves, well, I I really hope those guys learn their lesson, you know, because Jesus sure showed them. Um, But to do that is to make the same mistake that the Pharisees have just made because they missed the point of the parable. They're upset that Jesus has told this parable against them when the parable is not primarily about them at all. They've just asked Jesus, what authority are you doing these things by? And then he proceeds to tell them this story about a man who builds a vineyard. And what does this man do? He sends his son to collect the rent. And they're focused on their perception of whose vineyard it is and who really owns it. And they seem to have missed some really important information. That this, this Jesus, the master storyteller, has just revealed this amazing thing about himself that they're completely ignoring. And this is the power of Jesus' parables. It forces out the true nature of our hearts. Because what we are focused on when we read this story, where we place ourselves in the story, is a reflection of us. If we quickly jump to the conclusion, oh, those poor Pharisees are about to get thrown out of the vineyard, but ooh, look at me, I'm the guy who is going to be the new owner of this vineyard, then we've missed it. But if you've picked up on Jesus' primary point, which is that the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, then we're on to something. Because that's the core of the parable. This isn't about them. This isn't about us. It's about Jesus. (laughs) The question is not, who are we in the parable? The question is, who are we in relation to the cornerstone? What are we founded upon? By what authority are you doing these things, they asked Jesus. And he says to them, let me tell you a story about the creator of the universe who built a vineyard and sent his son. You would think that that would get their attention but they're so focused on themselves that they missed it. They were more worried about their position than even the answer to the question that they had asked. And we want to not make that mistake ourselves. So let's look more in depth at 
the parable itself. A man planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it and he dug a pit for the wine press and he built a tower. Note the details that Jesus puts into just describing the vineyard, right? The man didn't just lease out an empty plot of land. The landowner who owns this piece of property, he's the one who built the vineyard. He's the one who plowed the land and he planted the seed. It was his land, his seed, his labor. He marked its borders. He built a wine press to make it a functioning and a productive vineyard so that you could actually make wine from the grapes that you cultivate from it. It's not just an empty piece of land, but it's a fully functioning business that the landowner here is leasing out. And we often think in terms of, of just salvation being prevenient grace, but what Jesus here is trying to teach us about this vineyard is that God is first in his actions towards us. In salvation, we realize that God is first. But in the story of the vineyard, Jesus is saying that God is first in all things, beginning with life itself. You know, God told Jeremiah that I knew you even before you were formed in the womb. And the psalmist tells us uh, in Psalm 139, I'm going to read from the middle section here, in 139.13, he says this. He says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none. And that's what we see here in the parable. That these gardens that God has carefully cultivated, the gardens of our lives, God has planned and prepared to be fully functioning as he intended. God is aware intimately of us, our strengths, our weaknesses, our abilities. You know, before Adam had a chance to say a word, God realized he was alone and said, it's not good for man to be alone, and gave him a helper. Before Abram knew who God fully was, God had called him out of Ur, God had prepared the land of Canaan already for the children of Israel. And before mankind ever knew his need for salvation, the Bible tells us that God had prepared a savior for us because he knew that man was going to fall. And before you knew your need for God, God had paved a way for you to get to know him. You know, I always love it when people say, I'm just, I'm just looking for the Lord. I'm just looking for God. God's not lost. <laughs> we are. <laughs> Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost. God is pursuing you. And too often when, when we think of ourselves as, as trying to find God, it's because we're running from God. We're running from his truth. We don't like what we've heard, as we're going to see from the Pharisees. But God is not lost. And so all the things that the vineyard represents, it represents humanity, which God has prepared to produce fruit for him. It also represents the nation of Israel, which God had cultivated to be a particular vineyard that would shine forth and bring forth the Messiah and bring mankind back to God. But the vineyard also represents each one of us that God has also prepared for a purpose in this life. And your life, like the vineyard, has been planted by God for a purpose to produce fruit. And so what does God expect us to do? Well, he tells us in verse 2. He says, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants 
to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And that's what God wants. God wants the fruit of our lives that he is due. Now, there's a couple of things we should note about this. The first one we're not going to dig in too deep because you've heard it here multiple times and you'll continue to hear it. But we want to be careful and emphasize what fruit in the Bible is and it is not. Fruit is not what we can produce. Fruit is not about our self-labor, how we work unto the Lord, the good deeds that we do. Fruit is the result of the vineyard and what the owner has already planted. The seeds have been planted by God. The fruit is what it produces in us. And so we want to be very, very careful to reference another parable. We don't want to be like the, uh, the, the, you know, the wicked enemy of the landowner who comes and sows bad seed after the good. And if we try to sow any other seed other than the word of God, if we try to produce any other fruit than what the Holy Spirit is doing in us, that's sowing bad seed into God's good ground. So we want to be very careful that we don't think of fruits as works, as what we need to do in order to save ourselves, in order to please the Lord. Fruits is what is produced in us as we surrender ourselves to his word and to his Holy Spirit. And so for those who don't know the Lord, and this is clearer in Matthew's version of this parable, um, and I won't go through the, the depth of it, but in, in, in Matthew it becomes very, very clear that for those who are not saved, if Jesus is not Lord and Savior of your life, the only f- productive fruit you can give God is the fruit of repentance. That's what God wants in the life of an unsaved person. And then in a saved person, um, if we have made Jesus the Lord of our life, then the fruit of the Spirit has to be allowed to develop and to grow in us when we live in accordance with his word and when we are fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the second part, let's be clear, is to understand that the expectations of the landowner here in seeking some of the fruit is far less than what someone in any other situation would have been asked or what God is due. You know, having put in all the necessary capital, having built out the vineyard, having provided the seed, God could have simply just hired a bunch of workers and paid them wages. But that's not what he does. He gives the land to the tenants for an opportunity for them to share in the reward of the production of that land. And so we need to see that what God is asking of us here is way below what you would normally anticipate. And this is exactly what John tells us um, in, John, in 1 John 5.3. He says, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. God generously offers these tenants to benefit from all that he has capitalized in this land. And God generously allows us to benefit from all the benefits of his creation. And that's what Jesus is showing us here. It's not like the landowner is treating the tenants so badly that if they give him what he wants, they're going to be subsistent tenants or serfs, like in the days of serfdom. It's not a matter that God is going to impoverish them and leave them with barely anything. No. And so the issue is exposed by Jesus in verse 7. The issue is the hearts of the tenants. It says, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. It is greed that prevents them from giving what is due to the landowner. They want it all. And that is the curse of discontentment. And we all suffer from it because that is what sin does into our own lives. It is the reality that whatever it is we think that God has blessed us with, 
It'll never be enough. You know, we live in times where everything is deemed an addiction, right? Pornography, it's an addiction. It's, you know, if eating, it's an addiction. It's not a matter of self-control. It's not a matter of anything else. We've got something that has empowered us beyond our abilities to contain it. And the reality, it's not what it is. It is about our inability, as the Rolling Stones put it, to get no satisfaction. God knows the heart of man. And he tells us that our heart is deceptive above all things. And one of the most deceptive things is the pursuit of anything apart from God. Whether it is success or wealth or fame or love, whatever it is apart from God, it cannot satisfy. And man keeps believing, if I can just get X, I will be happy. Then he's not happy. And he needs more of X. And it's never enough. And that is the problem. Why? The answer is that true satisfaction can only be found in God because when he was intricately building out his vineyards, he built us that way. And the story of the fall is seeking satisfaction apart from God. And the story of our fall will always be when we try to replace God in our lives with things. Whatever that thing is, it doesn't matter what it is. Whatever it is you think ultimately can satisfy, it won't. And different members in the audience that day and different members in this audience have tried to replace God with different things. You know, Daniel reviewed many of those things in chapter 11. That's what Jesus was systematically taking apart as he went through chapter 11. He cursed the fig tree to teach them that dead religion, apart from a vibrant relationship with the living God, can't satisfy. He cleansed the temple because the greed and, and the lies and the attempted shortcuts that they were trying to take through the temple to get to God to find sat happiness can't satisfy. He didn't answer the religious leaders because their self-serving desire for power, their self-serving care more for their position than for the temple of God and their means by which they were seeking to do it as people pleasers, multiple times were told they wouldn't do something because the people didn't like it or the people did like it. It can't satisfy. Nothing does. And the irony of mankind is that as we seek to shut out God, we're actually shutting out the only thing that can truly satisfy us. The only thing that's ever going to give us what we want. And when we distort his truth, we are closing the door to what God offers as the means of truly producing contentment and satisfaction in our lives. And each one of us in the many areas of our lives have done exactly what Jesus is warning the audience about. We've taken that which was lent to us for stewardship, to be faithful stewards of. We've sought to take possession of it, to own it for ourselves. And in doing so, we're destroying it. Whether it's our bodies, our minds, our families, our lives, our jobs, whatever it is that God has put into our possession for stewardship, when we seek to own it for our own purposes, we lead it to destruction. We cannot afford to forget that we do not belong to ourselves. We were created intricately 
by this landowner and prepared for his purposes. The Bible makes it clear that he is the potter, we are the clay. And whether it is the nation of Israel or whether it's humanity as a whole, or each one of us individually, we have been created to serve and to worship God the Creator. And only in that are we going to find true satisfaction. And note what Jesus is saying. God isn't even asking for all, right? He didn't come and say, give me all the fruit. It's my winery. It's my seeds. It's my land. He's come and he says, give me some. Give me what I am due. There is so much that God has given us for us to enjoy. And all he requires is that we give what is his. He says, here is my creation. Enjoy it. Reap the fullness of the benefits of the amazing technology and creativity that God has given man. All the things that bring us comfort and make our lives easier. Enjoy the goodness and the fullness of it. But give me what is mine. And mankind says, nah, we want to take that for ourselves also. (laughs) We get greedy. We seek to steal from God. And what is it that is due him? His tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. This is absolutely amazing because they've been asking Jesus, who are you? They just asked him, by what authority you do this? He's out there cleansing the temple. And here he gives this detail, and somehow this has escaped them. You know, there's so often the claim that Jesus never claimed to be God, that Jesus never affiliated himself with the Son of God. And you read a parable like this, and you go, what? (laughs) He just said it. (laughs) He said they sent his Son and we, we, we can't afford to miss it the way the Pharisees had. He didn't call himself a good teacher. He didn't call himself the enforcer of the landowner. He didn't call himself a rabbi who came to teach him a lesson. He said the landowner sent his son. Jesus had absolutely no doubts as to who he was. And he, we need to erase in our mind any doubt as to Jesus' claim to being the son of the living God. We need to raise any doubts to Jesus' claim of a trinity in which he was the second person of the Godhead. And we also need to erase any doubts that Jesus had with regards to exactly what was going to happen to him. He was going to be killed. He just stated that. And he had no doubts as to how man intended to usurp and take what belonged to God Because God tells them exactly what he expected from them. Here is my beloved son. They will respect my son. But instead, they killed his son. And so what we learn is that denying Jesus' deity is to steal from God what is required of him. And Jesus warns us to deny the honor and the respect due him is to court destruction. Look at verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to others. And this is where it's so important that we understand that Jesus is not telling a parable to a bunch of religious leaders 2,000 years ago. He is speaking to us. There is going to be a judgment for anyone who does not do what the landowner expected of his tenants. Respect the son. And we see this in verse 12. 
It's so easy to read that, for they perceived that the parable was against them. And let's be careful not to believe the Pharisees over the Word of God. That's their perception. And to the extent that they're not respecting the Son, it is against them. But it's against anyone who doesn't respect the Son. That is the lesson of the parable. God has not, doesn't have a favorite group, whether it's just the Jews or the Gentiles or the church. He's not replacing the Jews with the church in any way. It's not that one gets to enjoy this garden and another doesn't get to enjoy the garden. No. Everybody in that crowd has a responsibility. The parable was to each and every one of them, and it's to each and every one of us. And if we don't want to be a part of those who are going to experience the judgment of God, then we need to respect the Son. And Jesus is going to tell us exactly how to do that in verse 10. He says, have you not read this scripture? Speaking to them in their language. Have you not read the scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. You see, that is to respect the Son. Is to make him the cornerstone of our lives. That is what Jesus is meant to be. And I want to read this definition of cornerstone. I just love this. Uh, I was sharing with one of the young adults this exact thing, and I went back and found this, um, this definition. I just thought it was perfect. It says, the cornerstone, or fountain stone, or setting stone, is the first stone set in the construction of a masonry foundation. Now, that part we often get, right? It's the supporting stone, and we often teach that. But listen, the second half of this is great. All other stones will be set in reference to this stone, thus determining the position of the entire structure. See, that's the key to the cornerstone. We all know that the cornerstone is the weight-bearing stone, and that's important. But the cornerstone is also meant to be the reference stone for everything else in the construction of that building. The stone from which determines the direction of our lives. It is the reference to everything else. It places the direction for what should be done. For every other brick that is to be laid in the building of our lives, which God calls his temple. And so if the cornerstone faces east, your life needs to face east. If the cornerstone faces west, your life needs to be facing west. We need to orient ourselves and our lives around what Jesus is doing. Anything else is to court disaster. And if you feel like your life is crumbling, it's because Jesus is not the cornerstone. If the cornerstone is here, and we're setting our building over here and facing a different direction, there's no support. We need to set ourselves upon the cornerstone and orient ourselves so that we're going in the direction and building ourselves as he desires, in order to produce the fruit that he desires. You know, as I was sharing this with Rob, uh, I had taken out a scripture, and since I have seven minutes, I'm going to put it back. Because Rob was just sharing with me, and I think it's just such a powerful point. If you understand why God, if you're a parent, you understand why God desires for you to respect the son. Every parent here takes offense when someone takes offense to his kid, right? Especially wrongly. And here, God sent his son for us, not because he needed to come. 
God was God. He was in his heaven. But he saw a lost humanity. And he sent his son to come and pay the price for our sins, for the destruction we were causing to our gardens that he had planted and lent to us. And then we turn around and we disrespect the son. I mean, you'd be offended too. (laughs) You wouldn't care for that. And that's exactly what this is. God sees the offense to his son and he's offended. And John 3 16 through 18 brings this home probably more powerfully than any other scripture. I mean, we all know for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That was his heart, that he was willing to sacrifice him, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And eternal life is not just that we get to be in heaven forever. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is now. It's the orienting of our lives to produce satisfaction in our lives now. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. It's not his desire, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him, whoever does not respect the son, is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Don't let that be you today. If you haven't been respecting the son as you have been called to do, take that time. The fruit of repentance is all that is required. It is recognizing that your cornerstone is not Jesus and you need to be planted on that cornerstone. Make him the cornerstone of your life. Reorient your life and watch the fruit that God will produce in and through you. We're going to pray if that is you this morning or if you have been saved but you haven't been building your bricks in the same direction as God. Pray also. Let's pray now. Amen. Father, thank you for the Son. Father, what can we say but thank you for the Son? Father, that you sent your Son to lovingly come and to pay the price for us. Father, to become the weight-bearing cornerstone for our lives, not just our salvation, but moving forward, that we can build every brick in our lives upon that cornerstone, which will assure us the support, which will assure us the productivity and the fruit that you desire to see in our lives. Lord God, if there's anybody here this morning who is desiring to get to know you, to get to make Jesus the cornerstone of their life, would you just pray and say, Lord Jesus, I surrender this morning to make you the cornerstone of my life. Would you come and help me build the building that you have purposed for my life as you intended? Change my heart that I might respect the Son going forward. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the power of this tale. We thank you, Lord God, that Jesus speaks to us and reveals our heart. May we know that it is all about him, and may we orient our lives appropriately. In Jesus' name, amen.